Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be together today as we continue to look into uh, God's Word. We should always be praying, you know, as we begin any kind of message that we're letting the Holy Spirit teach us. Jesus said the Spirit should be our teacher, and he uses a lot of different uh, methods to help us do that, and uh, hearing a message, reacting to a message is one of those ways. And so I just pray that God would use the words that I've prepared and by his spirit would he speak to you. And that's why sometimes people afterwards will say, I really like it when you said such and such. And I never actually said that. But, you know, the spirit actually gives people insights, I guess, in certain ways. But to get us started today, how good are you at making excuses? I mean, how good are you at that? We all do it from time to time. Some people do it more than others. Some people do it perpetually, which is not a good way to live. But since we all do it or we have done it, you sort of have to admire people who come up with really creative excuses. And so here are some actual, real excuses taken from auto insurance claim forms. See if you can identify with any of these. The first one says, I thought my window was down, but I found it was up when I put my head through it. I mean, that's called using your head, right? So here's another one. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve several times before I finally hit him. I mean, I like his persistence. You know, he's going to keep at it. Okay, how about this one? The pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran him down. I mean, that sounds like New York City to me. I mean, it's just, that's just normal life. But this is my favorite. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over an embankment. You know? <laughs> I mean, guys, honestly, can't we all say we've been there? I think maybe. I don't know. Well, today we're talking about the way people often make excuses for why they aren't willing or they're not ready yet to take that step of faith and turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as we saw Michael do just a few minutes ago. Some of the common excuses or reasons why not, why it's not right for them, the way they kind of deflect away from any conversation having to do with making a choice or a decision about Jesus one way or another. Now, this topic kind of comes up as the logical next step in this mini six-week message series we've been doing on the common expression, I'm spiritual but not religious. So let me, in case you haven't been here all those weeks, let me do a quick review. Uh, we started by looking that life is a, is a spiritual journey. And there are some forks in the road along that journey uh, when it comes to what people believe about the spiritual world. Some decision points where you have to go this way or that way. The first decision point was this, is there something or is there nothing? Is there something out there in the universe at least that God everything started, some cosmic force or a God or whatever that brings order and meaning to the universe? Is there something or is there nothing? If there's nothing, then it's just cold, dark space. Everything exists simply by time and chance. We're an accident with no meaning or purpose beyond just survival. And we looked at how, for the vast majority of people, they already do believe that there is a something out there. Maybe not the God of the Bible, but they do believe there's something. And it's actually very hard to find someone who is just a stone-cold uh, atheist, who absolutely believes there's absolutely nothing beyond what we can see and touch. Then the second fork in the road asks that, is that something, is it personal or impersonal? Is it a being who interacts with its creation, a being that is self-aware, that has a will and a purpose and then that can take action on that will? A being who knows us and whom we can know. A being who can love or has an eternal plan for creation. Or is it just this impersonal energy force that kind of pulsates through the universe? No self-awareness, no awareness of us, 
you know, it's the stars, it's karma, it's the force. And when we die, we just merge back with this cosmic energy like a drop of water going back into the ocean. This is the fork that divides between theistic religions like Islam and Judaism and Christianity and all their offshoots and the, those that are more like, um, you know, that postulate you do have a personal God and those who uh, don't like Hinduism and Buddhism and all the rest. And a lot of people take the wrong fork here because an impersonal force, it doesn't ask anything of me. It doesn't require anything of me. There's no relationship. So then there are no moral expectations or, or, or moral judgments to be made. It just is, and if I believe that, then I'm off the hook. doesn't disrupt, doesn't challenge my life in any way. But then it also then doesn't provide any meaning or any purpose or any peace to my life either. Well, then the third fork in the road of this journey is dealing with Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is he who he claimed to be, the physical presence of this personal God? Or should we look somewhere else? Is he who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, one with God the Father and the Spirit? Or is he just one among many spiritual gods? Because the answer to that question determines everything else. A couple weeks ago, Mike preached on how Jesus was really kind of at the top of the list of people who would say, I'm spiritual but not religious. If you define religion as rituals and belief systems created by human beings, Jesus literally flipped the tables on the religious people of his day who had created this system that was corrupt and false and did not represent the true and the living God. Jesus had no problem exposing their corruption or, 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 or calling people to a more authentic faith where he was the center. At that point, people may have some serious and legitimate questions that should and need to be asked, and we should be willing to give people good responses in love and in respect. We need to be open to sincere questions. In fact, we should actually invite those questions from sincere seekers. I really like this book uh, written by Mark Middleberg called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. He puts together a list of the top nine questions that he says people ask about the faith. And let me read them to you this morning. First, this is from the perspective of the person outside of faith. What makes you so sure that God exists at all, especially when you can't see, hear, or touch him? Didn't evolution put God out of a job? Why rely on religion in an age of technology and science? Number three, why trust the Bible? If is, is, is it a book that's filled with myths and contradictions and mistakes? Fourth, everyone knows Jesus was a good man and a wise teacher. Why try to make him into the Son of God? Fifth, how could a good God allow so much evil, pain, and suffering? Or does he simply not care? Why is abortion such a line in the sand for many Christians? Why can't I just be left alone to make my own choices for my own body? Why do you condemn homosexuality when it's clear that God made gays and that he loves all people the same? How can I trust in Christianity when so many Christians are hypocrites? And the final question, why should I think that heaven even exists or that God sends people to hell? These are great, tough, even very uncomfortable questions. And we as Christians, we need to be open and willing to engage with these questions and with the people because they need solid answers. I highly recommend this book to anybody if you're interested in being better equipped to engage in this kind of dialogue in a healthy and respectful way. And if you'd be interested in us providing a class on that book, 
that you'd be interested in attending, would you either tell me or email me so I can find out if there's enough people that we'd be happy to organize a book that could help people, or a class, if, if people would like to do that. Just let me know. Well, then last week, Colleen spoke about grace, God's undeserved love offered to us through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. How grace is freely offered to every single person on planet Earth. And even so many people still refuse the author offer. Thinking that they can maybe earn their way into God's favor or be good enough. People seem to resist God's grace because it requires us to bend the knee of human pride. It requires us to surrender our will to his greater will. And there's just something in the human heart that resists the idea of surrender. We think we're self-sufficient. We think we can save ourselves. We don't take Jesus' words seriously. And that's when the excuses start rolling in. Now, making excuses as to why Jesus is or isn't God in the flesh, making excuses about why we should or shouldn't follow Jesus, that's actually nothing new. In fact, Jesus gives us a model of this kind of a conversation in the Gospel of John chapter 4. And many of you are familiar with the story of the Samaritan woman. I don't have time to go into all the details. It's a very rich story. But quickly, when traveling from northern Galilee down to southern Judea, the Jews would normally go around this area called Samaria because they, the Jews and the Samaritans had hated each other for centuries. They fought wars against each other. It was not good. But Jesus takes his disciples right into the heart of enemy territory. At a crossroads, there's a famous well called Jacob's Well. It was sacred to both Jews and to Samaritans because even though they hated each other, they both loved and respected their common ancestor, Jacob, who they considered to be the father of both groups of people. And water was so scarce that a well was really a sacred place, a safe place where people could gather without fear. So it's about 12 noon. The sun is high. Jesus is tired and hungry. He sends the disciples off into a nearby town to get some carry-out falafel or something like that. He's thirsty. So when this woman of Samaria comes to the well to draw water, Jesus simply says, please give me a drink. That's what starts the conversation. He's kind of on neutral ground with her. He met her at a safe place. But since the well is 100 feet de deep, he doesn't have his own bucket or anything to drink one. So he asks to drink from her cup. And she is shocked because of the many levels of tension that exist in the story. The first is, there's just this racial hatred. There's this racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans that I mentioned earlier. But there's also sexual tension here because a Jewish man just simply would never speak to a Samaritan woman or to any woman who was not part of his extended family, would never speak to them in public. It just wasn't done. And then he never would have used a woman's cup to drink from. It just absolutely never would have been done. So she says in verse 9, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to put your male Jewish lips on my female Samaritan cup. Nobody ever, we wouldn't even sit next to each other at a lunch counter. And then you add to the fact that this woman has a serious reputation. We discover that she's had five husbands and she's living with number, potentially number six. I mean, that's pretty crazy even by today's standards. So there's a lot of heartache in her life, a lot of grief and possibly a lot of scandal. No decent man would talk to this woman in public except Jesus. And then there's the religious tension, and this is what I want to focus in on. Jews and Samaritans did not worship the same way. They had common roots, but they had divided a long time ago. 
each had their own sacred sites, their own rituals and things like that, and they felt pretty much disdain for each other. So she's totally shocked, but she's also interested because Jesus has been talking about this thing called living water, and she's, she wants to know more. She's a little reluctant to go too far down that road. So that's when her excuse comes out. She does a, what so many people do when Jesus gets a little bit too close. She pulls out the, aren't all religions basically the same? She throws that card down like it's going to trump whatever Jesus has to say. This is what she says in verse 19. Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. You hear what she's starting to say? Jesus, you've got your mountain. My people got my mountain. Potato, potato, you know, what, what's really the difference? It's a very modern statement. Don't all religions basically get you to the same place? Aren't they just different roads to the top of the same mountain? It doesn't matter how you get there. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere because all roads lead to the top of the mountain. I mean, have you heard that idea expressed? I'm sure you have. It's one of the most common ways people deflect having to make a decision about Jesus. It's a common way to sidetrack or kind of throw a curveball into the conversation. But if you think about it, it's really a silly analogy. It can only be said by people who've never actually had to go to the top of a mountain. I mean, you go up Pikes Peak, there's only one road to the top of that mountain. You climb Mount Everest, there's only one trail to go the last 100 yards to the summit. This past summer, Don and I went to uh, Glacier National Park in Montana, so beautiful. But there's only one road through that stretch of the Rocky Mountains. It's a twisty, curvy uh, nail biter called the Going to the Sun Road. Now, you can try and find another path through those high mountains, and they'll find your body in the spring when the snow thaws, you know? All roads do not lead to the same destination. Some roads will get you partially there. Some roads will get you lost. Some roads are actually deadly. Of course, there's overlap between religions when it comes to basic kind of moral things like, well, don't murder and, and don't steal. There are a lot of common ethical teachings, but in no religion are those things the center or the core of what is believed. Religions are more similar on the peripheral issues, but they are in no way similar in the core teachings. And when people try to lump all religions together, it's really an insult to all of those religions, not just to Christianity. It's an insult to all the religions when their distinctives are so callously dismissed. It's not intellectually honest to say they basically teach the same thing. They do not. That's a curveball for people who don't really want to think too deeply about Jesus. Well, then there's a second evasion that's similar to the all roads lead to the top of the mountain. And that's that all, roads, or all religions tell us some truth, partial truth. And so for that reason, we shouldn't take any religion too seriously. It's more of a buffet. Kind of pick what you like from each one. Sample the truth that it teaches. The word for that is syncretism. It means mixing everything together in kind of, of a, a one single mush. The standard illustration, and I know I've talked about this before, is the story about the four blind men who come upon an elephant for the very first time. One blind man touches the elephant's trunk and says, an elephant is like a giant snake. A second blind man touches the, the elephant's leg and says, no, an elephant is like a tree trunk. Another grabs the elephant's ear and says, no, an elephant is like a, like a sheet of leather. And the blind man at the rear, feeling the end of the tail, says, no, 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 you're all wrong. An elephant is like a little mouse. The point being that it's silly to think that any one religion could accurately describe the enormity of God. 
So no one religion is any truer than any other religion. It doesn't matter which one you pick. But friends, that's a false analogy because the way the story goes, the blind men are not describing a real elephant. They're describing a statue of an elephant, something that's totally static. A real elephant isn't going to just stand there. A real elephant interacts with its environment, and that interaction will reveal something about its nature and what it's like. So the guy handling the trunk, he's going to get a big surprise when that trunk sprays water into his face. Or the guy who's uh, holding the leg, he's going to get a real big surprise when the elephant decides to stomp on him because he's tickling him. And I really hate to think what's going to happen to the guy holding up the tail. I mean, he's, he's in for a really nasty surprise. A real elephant moves, it interacts, it's not static. It will reveal something of itself even to the blind men. You see, God isn't static. He's not a statue that we get to examine. He's a God who has chosen to act in real time and history, has chosen to interact with his creation. And so he has chosen to reveal himself to us so that we can know exactly what God is like. That's what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in verse 25. The woman said, I know the Christ, the Messiah, is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I mean, you cannot get any clearer than that. Jesus claims to be God with skin on, revealing God's self so that this woman could know him. And that's a claim that cannot be pushed aside or hidden or ignored. You can't say Jesus is a good religious teacher without confronting the things he actually taught. We can't just gloss over how direct and how clear Jesus is and the many other places in Scripture that teach the exact same thing. One of my favorites is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. Not a little bit by, like God, the exact representation. And that reality requires a response requires a decision, not an excuse. Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis famously points out, and many of you know this, that there are only three options that are logical to believe about Jesus. Either he's a lunatic, he's the Lord, or he's a liar. Uh, Lewis put it this way in his book, C.S. Mere Christianity. Let me read it for you. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You see, to say what Jesus said, to teach what Jesus taught, he was either crazy, he was a con man, or he was and is the Christ. And that choice is what people do not want to face. The main struggle we have in communicating the gospel today to people is that they just want it to be vague. And Jesus just won't let it stay that way. He gets too specific. Just as with the Samaritan woman, Jesus pushes people to the point of making a decision. And at that point, not to decide is to decide. Not to decide is to decide. Not to decide is a no. Think about it this way. Like you're standing on the platform of a train station trying to decide am I going to get on the train or not. 
There is time to waver. There's time to waffle and consider. But there will come a time when the doors close and the train leaves the station. And at that point, not deciding is a no. It's a decision that has consequences. Have you made your decision about Jesus Christ? Have you made your decision? I hope so. Because if you haven't, then I hope maybe today is that day. That today is today you set all your excuses aside, set all your resistance aside, turn your heart towards this God of love who wants to embrace you as his own, who wants to grace you with his salvation, who wants you to know your place and your purpose in this world. And what's great is that because he's a personal God, we can simply talk to him and that he hears us. We could talk to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for the way I've rebelled against you. I'm sorry for the way that I've ignored you. Please forgive me. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead in power. Thank you for coming again to save me. Please come into my heart as my Lord and Savior. Make me a new person. Help me to love and serve you with my whole heart. If that's your sincere prayer this morning, if this is the first time maybe you've committed yourself to Christ, would you please just let me know, either personally or through an email, however you want to do it, because I'd love to help you take your first baby steps in this new life. Folks, we need to be praying for family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors who need to move beyond their excuses and confront this point of decision. Because at this point, it's not a logical thing, it's not a rational thing, it's not something that can be reasoned. It's spiritual. It is spiritual warfare. It is spiritual for people to make that step of faith. And the only thing you can do at that point is not argue with people, but to pray that the Spirit of God would help them to move, move past their own rebellion and embrace Jesus as their Savior. Because he is waiting with open arms. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you just for the fact that you are the one who so perfectly represents to us the nature and character of God. And that we find out that God loves us. He's passionate about us. He's willing to sacrifice for us. Wants us to know him for all eternity. Wants to give us purpose and meaning and direction in this life, but also life to come. If there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't, hasn't taken that step, would you just nudge on their heart and not give up on them? until they come to that point of decision and then grace them with living water flowing from within. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.